Our um, uh, topic this morning, we're completing our studies of the doctrine of grace, uh, the five points that we've been talking about, uh, typically known as the five points of Calvinism, the last one being uh, the perseverance of the saints, a very technical way of describing the fact that God loves us with a love that will not let us go. The text that we're going to be looking at in particular is out of Romans chapter 8, again right there in the thick of Paul's wonderful message to the Roman church, where he speaks to us about the adoption that we have in Christ, about the fact that there's no condemnation for those of us who are now are in Christ Jesus, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I encourage you to turn there. It's on page 944 in your pew Bible. As you're turning there... I always think about this when I think about the idea of running a race, about the 1968 Olympics. It was in Mexico, uh, uh, the marathon run. Marathons are something that I just absolutely cannot wrap my mind around, that idea that you would go for 26.2 miles. If you talk to anybody that's ever run a marathon, that .2 is apparently a big deal. You tell them, oh, it's 26 miles, they say to 26.2. A very important a uh, little last kick that you've got to get in there to complete it. Well, in the, uh, this particular Olympic event, the, uh, the runners, um, the, uh, the very first athlete to cross the finish line was, as many times as the case, an Ethiopian runner who enters the stadium and the crowd just erupts because you've run for this entire probably 26 miles in the last you know, two-tenths of a mile or so is circling the track there uh, in the stadium. The crowd erupts. But there was one runner who really made the, uh, the press following the 1968 Olympics. You've probably heard of John Stephen Akwari. He was from Tanzania. Um, he didn't medal. He didn't even get the bronze. Uh, matter of fact, um, the last uh, little bit of that run, he, he ran with uh, his head throbbing, his muscles aching, his knees bloody, leg injuries and things uh, that would require medical attention. What he had happened is he had fallen along the way. Well, he got up, he he wrapped himself up, and he kept running. He kept running, and he hobbles the last 12 kilometers to cross the finish line. He finished the race a full hour behind uh, the first runner. Everybody had gone home, except for a few folks who remained in the stadium, still excited about the day's events. Well, it's considered to be one of the most heroic efforts in Olympic history, and a reporter came up to him and asked, uh, Mr. Aquari, why in the world did you not drop out of the race? And he said, my country did not send me to Mexico to start a race. They sent me to the Olympics to finish a race. And that's what we're talking about here, the, that the notion of finishing the race, of running the race and crossing the line. You see, if you run the Boston Marathon, if you run any race, but you, you come just that short of the line and you stop, you're not reckoned as someone having run the race. I talked to Boy Scouts all the time as Thomas was coming up and as those who were serving alongside Thomas and our troop, I said, nobody ever puts on their resume almost an Eagle Scout. And when it comes to our, our faith, we, we certainly make it a significant part of our prayers or ought to, that we would run the white race well and that we would cross the line. One bit of advice I was given by... Uh, a seasoned veteran as I went on my first military deployment. He said, serve well, return with honor. It's finishing the race. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Look with me at the text. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. 
A lot has gone on to this point. Again, the concept of adoption, the concept of our being co-heirs with Christ, uh, being also those who would suffer alongside in the same pattern as Christ, that we would suffer with Him and also be glorified with Him, that we are heirs of God, inheriting all that is Christ's. And so we pick up in verse 31 where we read these words. It says, So what then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it's written, For your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this, your word. We thank you for the lengths to which Paul goes to explain to us that there is nothing that can make the God who loves us this day stop loving us tomorrow. Lord, may we rejoice in that, but also, Lord, may we hear it with a solemn warning and call that we would be in the examination of our hearts and our lives, Lord God, to see that we are in Christ, that your fruit is being born in our lives, for you have changed our heart from that of stone to that of flesh, that we might love you as we ought. Lord, guide us as we spend time in your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to review, remember we talk about the five doctrines of grace. Not an entire summary of what we would call Reformed theology, but important points where there has been significant uh, turmoil and, and strife and battle and debate and discussion over God's nature and how it is uh, that His grace is made ours. We see our sin as we've been talking about this. Total depravity, that idea that that we have no ability to save ourselves. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. We have spent some time talking about unconditional election. That is that we have an unearned grace, an undeserved mercy that our salvation is an act of God's free grace even before the world began. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. In love He did all this before the foundation of the world. That He would know us, He would know the totality of our sin, and He would love us anyway. We speak of limited atonement or a particular or a definite atonement that the sacrifice of Jesus' life is sufficient to save all people, but it's made particular and efficient to the children of God that upon the cross, Jesus really paid for my sins. He didn't just establish a count from which I ought draw. That Jesus saved me. That He loved me in particular. 
Irresistible grace was the last thing we looked at. That is, that God has to change our heart. He has to take us like Paul on the road to Damascus and throw us down and say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? To grab us and say, Phil, Carol, Rose, Brannon, why are you doing this? That He would take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. That He would would do radical surgery on us. And indeed, against our will. Because our will is such that I'm perfectly fine and content on my own. That I'm pursuing my own way. All we like sheep have gone astray, each seeking his own way. But what happens? The Lord lays on Jesus the iniquity, our sins, and He gives us a heart of flesh. He gives us a heart full of love for Him, for He loved us first. And this week we look at what we call the perseverance of the saints. That is, that all who are saved will win the fight of faith and will endure until the very end. Philippians 1.6. It can be no stronger text, I believe, uh, to prove this point. I am sure of this very thing Paul says from prison to the Philippian church. I am sure of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God is not going to stop midstream. God is not going to change his mind. God is not going to let you go. And so this fifth point, this perseverance of the saints, we're talking about endurance. We're talking about an assurance which will last. We're talking about the faithfulness of God and an eternal security that we so desperately need. It's been commonly called once saved, always saved. Now, sure, that's true enough, but it's given to great misinterpretation. The misinterpretation is often this. Well, I walked an aisle when I was such and such an age. I signed a card, I raised a hand, I joined a church, I took a class. And so I can just check that box and I'll always be saved. There's nothing to be done, now I can just go about the rest of my life. I've been given from the monopoly set of God a get out of hell free card. Well, that's the way many embrace it. They say, once saved, always saved. You know, I remember the time when I accepted Jesus. And it's a distant memory yet something that they would reckon on their spiritual resume. But what we need to see is those who are truly saved, those who have found their lives turned upside down for the sake of the gospel, indeed have every assurance of God that God will not let them go. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, Now, if our religion be of our own getting or of our own making, then that religion will perish. Hear this again. If our religion be of our own getting or our own making, then that religion will perish. And the sooner it goes, the better. But if our religion is a matter of God's giving, we know that He shall never take back what He gives. And that if He has begun to work in us by His grace, He will never leave that grace unfinished. God will not take back His gift. And God will not stop before His grace is fully complete. And so we look at this passage, this passage before us in Romans chapter 8. Look at it with me. We we see that the Apostle Paul, for the sake of this teaching, has asked several questions. And And you think, how is it that he is teaching us in this letter, but all he seems to be doing is asking questions? Well, in a couple of cases, he answers his own questions, and a couple of cases, he asks them in such a way that you know the answer is obvious. 
Well, look with me in that. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, what a a very simple but profound question. If God is on my side, if I am on the side of God, that idea like the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua, that idea that if Joshua, you are with the Lord, then who indeed can prevail against you? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He's asking it in such a way that we see effectively no one. No one can prevail. No one can defeat us as we stand in the Lord. He goes on to say, And so he who did, this is verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Look at the way that says. And it's a bit a bit awkward in its construction, yet, yet wondrous in its meaning. It says, if God didn't spare His Son, but gave Him for us, what is He going to hold back? It's that idea that I would give you a, a million dollars, but then when you said, hey, do you have 50 cents so I can get a Coca-Cola? Oh, come on. There would be this idea that, that there would be something that God would hold back on after giving us. Christ, that which was purchased, will not be taken back. That which was purchased ensures us, is a surety and a guarantee that all good and perfect gifts are of the Lord and given to us. What else do we see? Verse 33, Paul asks another question. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So who's going to bring a charge against you? For it is God who has justified now, when he says that, what he's saying is, if God has forgiven you, who's going to come to you and lay blame and guilt at your feet? Right? If, if God has forgiven you, if you have been declared not guilty by God, who is it that will turn around and say, no, 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 we're going to have a, some sort of divine double jeopardy here and try you again for it? That can't be the case. Paul goes on even more. I mean, this is it's amazing the way that he uses this particular style of teaching to ask question after question. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? He says, it's Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The only one who could possibly stand and, and lay a claim against us is the one who laid down his life for us. The only one who stands perfect that could point a finger at our guilt is the one who took his perfection and had it applied to us and took our sin upon him and bore its full cost. Verse 35, so simply ask, so what will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. What can make God stop loving us? Nothing. Amen? I was making sure. He goes on. By the way, Paul doesn't stop asking questions. He says, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, is the answer. None of these things. He says, no, I'm persuaded in all these things. We're more than conquerors. And he goes on to then, I love how he then piles uh, situation and circumstance upon situation and circumstance. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. (sighs) No matter how exhausted the list, no matter how much life piles on us, no matter how much it beats us down, none of this 
is able to separate us from that which saves us, the love of God. So why is he so emphatic about this? Why in the midst of this, ish, in this situation, talking about salvation, why does the Apostle Paul spend so much time talking to us and asking questions about what is it that could take this away? You know that he has for, for seven and a half chapters now been unpacking uh, how we come to know the love of God, how we come to experience salvation, how it is that, that the, the death of Christ has been applied uh, to us and the resurrection of Christ has been made our guarantee of eternity. And then he turns in the midst of all of this and he says, well, let's think for a second. Is there any circumstance under which this gift that you so love could ever be taken away? I can remember a number of Christmases and, and Christmas was always a, a difficult time. Christmas and birthday, two days apart for, for your pastor here. December 27th, make sure it's on the calendars. <laughs> but it was always a, a big, tremendous time. You're out of school, you're eating all kind of good Christmas goodies, that sort of thing. Not sleeping at all because you just can't wait uh, to find things under the Christmas tree and all that sort of thing. And then just, just always had just wonderful, my parents, my grandparents and all, that just for the longest while I was the only grandson, I was the only son, and just had, just, well, was spoiled rotten. Y'all are looking like, oh, that's no surprise. Well, I got over it. Um, but the, um, the, the, one th- <laughs> the one thing that, uh, that would, would regularly happen, though, is we'd open up all the presents, and I'd start playing with toys, and then the sleepies and the sugar highs and the collapses and all that kind of thing would take effect. And, you know, you'll find this hard to believe, but just take me at my word, I would misbehave. My wife's laughing the loudest in the room. I would misbehave, and, and some things would happen. Mom and Dad would sometimes have to take that toy that I'm playing with, and they'd have to set it aside. They wouldn't take it away from me but they'd set it aside. They'd set it aside and say, you can't play with this right now. They'd take, what? No, no, that's mine. And, and this is a, a common human condition. It's this idea that we live in a, in a state of insecurity. We live in a, in a time of, of not worried about somebody taking a present back from us, but the idea of someone taking their affection or their love back from us. The idea that we've all known and experienced those folks who we love very much and thought they loved us very much in the midst of the relationship, and then suddenly you find something that happens where you find yourself estranged and at odds with them. Marriages, relationships, breaking up, business partnerships, falling apart. Whereas if you had said something a year prior, you would have said, there's no way. I know that person will be with me always and forever. It's a, it's a common human condition this insecurity. It's so very common that Carol King wrote a song. And she didn't sing it originally, but it was sung by the Shirelles. Uh, Phil knows it. It's the, uh, uh, Carol King wrote it, and it's not the first verse, but it's about the, the third verse. Um, that the words that she wrote and that they sang with a catchy melody. I'd like to know that your love is a love that I can be sure of. So tell me now, and I won't ask you again, what? Will you still love me tomorrow? Will you still love me tomorrow? It's right now, I'm really confident that you love me. But can I count on that love? 
When, when, when a song picks up on that and it sells as many millions as it did, it's a little bit more than a catchy tune. It's a condition common to the human experience, that idea that we live in great insecurity because relationships fail, because people fail us, circumstances fail us, the world around us fails, but God does not. A couple of points I want you to, to take uh, from this. A couple of things I want you to take uh, of great assurance in this and one a brief exhortation and challenge. First off, understand that this is absolutely tied to the whole purpose of the gospel. The gospel itself, the gospel of God's grace, is a means of saving us forever. God does not, did not design the sacrifice of Christ and the gospel to save us for just a few days of our life. That when we are saved, we are saved forever. That's the whole design of the gospel. The God who never changes us, the God who never changes has given us the gospel to save us and to give us hope and a future, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? To save completely those who, who come to trust in God, Hebrews 7, 25. To hold in His hands, John 10, again, and in the most unsnatchable way, those whom He loves. The purpose of the gospel is to save us and to save us indeed and forever. We also need to look that we find this assurance grounded firmly in the finished work of Jesus. We see this in verse 32 and 34, that He who did not spare His own Son, and it was Christ who died for us, this particular atonement on the cross of Christ, as we looked at in the third point of the doctrines of grace, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus paid for my sins. I don't owe a debt any longer. For Christ has paid it all. All to Him I owe. That's our hymn of the week, by the way, coming up this next week. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. The finished work of Christ indicates that there is no longer any debt that could be held against me. And that means that Christ paid for my sins, past, present, and future. And so there is no way that God will be unjust and turn around and say, I know I forgave you that debt, but I'm going to impose that debt on you again. And He's saying, well, why? Why would he do that? Well, maybe, maybe if I go out and I sin, well, no, no, Christ has paid for all of my sin. All of my sin. The sins which I have not yet committed, the sins that I'll commit shortly before I die, Christ has paid for these. So God will not be unjust and impose a double debt upon us. For when Christ said, it is finished, he has paid it all. There is no basis upon which a Christian may stand condemned. The very nature of God says that God doesn't change His mind. If God loves me today, why would He not love me tomorrow? Well, look at it in terms of human relationships. Human relationships fail because we change our mind. We start behaving differently. We come to understand more new knowledge, right? This is why we change our minds on things. But none of those can be said of God. There's no information that God doesn't know. There, there is no situation in which God is going to change and behave differently. James 1.17 says, The one that gives us every good and perfect gift, in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in verse 30, right here, right before the text that we looked at today, it speaks about that wonderful golden chain of salvation, that those whom God predestined, He called, those whom He called, He justified, those whom He justified, He glorified. This is what God has promised to do, and He will not change course. Another thing that we find in this wonderful doctrine is comfort, the comfort of God in times of trouble. 
Mornings when we wake up depressed and weak. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can ask that, that, that serious question, who could possibly love me? I, I let people down. I fail in so many ways. And as your pastor, I'll confess to you and you can be quiet and, and still before the Lord and, and examine your own heart. But I let people down in relationships in ways they don't even know. For I think about my own thought life. I, th- I think about my own sinfulness, my own weakness. And say, if people really knew me, if I was not me, would I love me? There's incredible comfort in knowing. The, the message of the gospel is this. Paul says it this way to Timothy. Jesus Christ came in this world to save sinners, and you've got to understand I'm the worst one there is. It's exactly what Paul said. And, and the truth of the gospel is this. The bad news of the gospel is your sin is worse than even you know. Your sinfulness, your wretchedness, your, the vile nature of your offense and rebellion before God is worse than you know. But the gospel, the brilliant light that shines and casts away all that darkness is this, that God's love and grace is greater than we could ever possibly dream. And that love in which we are forgiven, the wretchedness of that sin forgiven, the rebellion against God wiped clean, separated from us as far as east is from the west, we find comfort in those times of trouble. Psalm 23 says it's the rod and the staff of God that gives us comfort, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And what is the purpose? How does Psalm 23 end up? It says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then what? I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Assurance, confidence, even the valley of the shadow of death cannot deter us from that eternal destination. What comfort we find in this. God knows me. He knows my weakness and my sin and He loves me anyway in a way that won't let me go. But the last thing we need to see is that this is a promise that comes in the light of a warning. This is a promise that does have a light that shines in the dark recesses of our lives. It's a call to examination. It's, you see, this is not a promise, as I said, given to just somebody who as a child checked a box on a card or walked an aisle at a revival. It's not a call to simply remember an event, but to look at our hearts, to examine our hearts Philippians 2.12, Paul tells the church at Philippi, he says, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means that we are, are constantly looking at our lives in the light and the lens of Scripture. Because we do have the ability to deceive ourselves, to fool ourselves for moments, to fool others, certainly. But we cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxieties, see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We constantly pray, Lord, I, I, I believe, I have faith, I trust in you, but Lord, help me to grow in my faith and in my walk with you. In short, we need to know that your Heavenly Father who loves you today, yes, He will still love you tomorrow. He will. 
And what's another wonderful thing about the process of sanctification, that, that life that we, we live right up until the time of our glorification, the wonderful thing about sanctification is we come to understand and to know that love in greater and greater ways. The idea that God will still love you tomorrow falls just a little bit short of the full truth. And that is, yes, God will still love me tomorrow in the exact same perfect way He loves me today, but you know what? Tomorrow I will understand it, know it, and rejoice in it just a bit better. That I can spend a lifetime coming to know, appreciate, and rejoice and how much the Lord loves me today and will still love me forevermore. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this, your text. Thank you for your word. I pray, Almighty God, that you would give us great comfort uh, this morning in our times of, of darkness and despair. But Lord God, you would also unsettle us that we would not be complacent and just simply look into historical events in our lives whereby we might hang our hat on saying, sure, I'm saved. But Lord, that we would walk with you and in our walking know that we are walking with you. That your spirit would testify with our spirit that we are children of God. That we would believe and trust and step out on that trust. And that we would love you more and more. And we praise you, Almighty God, for how well you know us and you love us anyway. We praise you in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.